Our world is lost in unnecessary fear and hurt. Our systems seem scientifically engineered to make you small, powerless, and always waiting for the next great leader who will fix the problems around us. Worse, we're witnessing neighbor versus neighbor while warfare breaks out around our family tables. But you have access to a spirit, a strength that enlarges and empowers you. Even better, you don't need to wait for the next big movement. You can heal the world. It's time for governance by Grace. Welcome to Gracearchy with Jim Babka. So, Bill, it's uh, there's this old saying: if voting changed anything, they'd make it illegal. <laughs> Jim, that's what they're doing. Yeah. So uh, welcome to campaign finance laws. This is how your votes, this is one of the ways, there's others, but this is the probably the most dramatic way in which your voting is made illegal. Yes. Your ability to influence the process is made illegal. So we're going to bring in a guest and I want to get right to it, but I want to lay just the following predicate if we could. Okay. I have a hypothesis and there's, it has two fundamental tenets but I've broken it down into multiple eight steps here so that we can go through and everybody can kind of understand um, how they all connect together, okay? Campaign number, uh, first one, campaign finance laws are voted into law by incumbents. So the people, who are, the people who are sitting in Congress make the laws. That's exactly right. Second, incumbents uh, are, are, are arranged in a hierarchy where they tend to obey the leaders of their party. Sure, okay. they're told what to do. Exactly. Now, this is a complex subject, but I just wanted to lay that out there so we can keep building the case. Three, the laws are written to favor incumbents to quite literally protect them from challenge. Yep. So Jack Kemp, a former Republican congressman who ran for vice president in 1996 on the Republican ticket with Bob Dole, said that uh, the, the difficulty of running as a challenger was akin to the man who had to fill a swimming pool with a teaspoon while his incumbent had a fire hose. Yeah. Four, this scares away the best challengers and the challengers that remain operate by their bootstraps. So what this means inherently is that fancy connected lawyers are a luxury. You just, there's no way you can take, you could even think about taking the job unless you're willing to go there and yep. have the funds. Yep. So now uh, be, uh, the experts as are, are required. And Justice Antonin Scalia uh, can even confessed during an oral, oral argument in 2013, quote, this campaign finance law is so intricate that even I can't figure it out, end quote. And James C. Miller, a former chairman of the Federal Trade Commission and former director of the Office of Management and Budget, agreed to be the campaign treasurer for a friend. And he was so distressed by his role that he wrote an entire book about the experience titled Monopoly Politics. He basically said, hey, look, if I was the head of OMB, I clearly know economics. If I was on the Federal Trade Commission, I clearly know about regulation. Why is it so hard to follow FEC rules? It's arcane and, and, and completely impenetrable. Next, upstart challengers who break through but don't follow the leadership or status quo lines may become targets for prosecution. Maybe they are. Let's be, let's be honest about this. This is our <laughs> We're guest We're going to get to today, that in a second. Man. Yep. And, and the last point is the most speculative. None of the things I've said up to this point really are speculative. I could argue and win on every one of these. But this last one, I will admit, 
I'll steel man and say this is speculative, but I tend to believe that political hitmen and hit women work inside enforcement bureaucracies to carry out these laws on a subjective basis. In other words, for the benefit of their team. So we're talking about people like uh, Mr. Cohen, Mr. Bragg. Well, in, in the case of Mr. Cohen, no, he's not inside. I'm talking about people actually being able to work inside the system at, at the Justice Department usually uh, to be able to, to target people. But they do it from the IRS. They do it from other locations. Oh, sure. I mean, like we, Lois Lerner. Um, right. Right. Okay. Yep. So I'm wishing to demonstrate these last two points here with, this, with our guest here today. So let's get into it. So we brought in Steve Stockman. Uh, to have a conversation. It, it is the, he was the U.S. rep for the 9th District of Texas from 1995 to 97. And now, and then had a second term two decades later, from 2013 to 15, in the 36th District of Texas. And his story is significant because it overlaps significant. By the way, let me throw out one personal thing, one connection. I work at Downsize DC. We wrote the Right the Laws Act. Steve is the only representative in the history of the U.S. Congress. Uh, we have a senator that's done this, but not a representative to introduce the Right the Laws Act, for which I am eternally grateful. Uh, so we've had a prior relationship. But I, I want to emphasize that Steve, we brought Steve in here because he didn't really cooperate with the leadership as it was at the time. He found himself with a similar target on his back. And the overlaps between Bill, between his case and Donald Trump's case, they're pretty extraordinary. And so I want to talk to him about what happened to him and maybe even begin to dissect again why. So, yes. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great hearing from you again. And uh, I wish you a belated birthday, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. So I, I, I want you to, first off, you're in Congress two different times. Uh, you were part of the uh, Contract with America wave. And then you come back in 2013 uh, for just a second. What was the reason for having such a big gap between your terms of service? I was told by the popular press and the uh, actually unpopular press, but I was told there was no way I could win. You know, I was too extreme, but we use proper mechanics and we won. And it's, it's an unusual, in fact, it's such an anomaly what we did is that, uh, especially having a generation 20 years apart from the two times, uh, we, we use techniques and stuff, which I don't uh, share publicly because some of it, I don't want my opposition to use. The guy I ran against Jack Brooks the first time was, everybody was afraid of him. And I said, you sh he's a bully. He really was. In fact, the book which just published, I think the year before last, He's been passed away now since 2012, but they still write about him. Uh, he was the one that went after Ali North. He was he was the one that started corrupting the DOJ. He was the head of the committee. And I said, you know, he, he actually came out bluntly in the, in the 90s and told me he was going to use the DOJ to go after me and was quite frank about it. And uh, back at, they, they came after me several times. And, and, then the, uh, and the last time they took four grand juries, $22 million. And, um, and, uh, and the same guy that's going after Trump now, Jack Smith is the one that went after me. He's also the one that went after John Woods, another conservative that in, endorsed Trump. So they went after him. He's from Arkansas and Hillary hated that. He's also the one that went after the governor in Virginia. And, um, but Jack their Smith. methods are, 
Jack Smith was specifically referenced by the president of the United States the night of his indictment. He, 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 he also is involved in that case. Right. He's evil. And, and there's a cabal. I mean, people don't realize that they all communicate with each, with each other. And I'm sure as I'm sitting here that Jack Smith and uh, Lois Lerner are involved in the case because people don't realize Lois Lerner was on the FEC and she went after me. She dropped the Chinese investigation where uh, Clinton was getting money from the Chinese. Uh, it was the, the monks or whatever were supposed to renounce money, but apparently they had enough to funnel it to the Clintons. She dropped that case to go after me. She deposed me back in the 90s. And so I've had a long history with her. And she wrote the memo to the DOJ, which she's not supposed to do. She's Unfortunately, she's got both experience, uh, and I say that cynically, but she worked in the FEC and in the nonprofit division. And she was uh, picked by Obama to go after the conservatives nonprofits and she's been vigilant about that and she wrote a memo outlining how to target conservatives and if you read that memo it's it's uh it's what they're doing to trump and i predicted this actually at the end of my trial the head of the public integrity section was so excited he says we're going to use this against trump and i tried to warn trump of this uh years ago and what was but, wait a minute, um, when you tried to warn him about this what was his response I never got a response back. I've written Trump and other people many times. And I even did, I did a meeting, a collective meeting with uh, all the conservative groups. Uh, what's his name? You know, the one in DC. And I warned everybody about it, but I, I've, it's been falling, it's fallen on deaf ears. But now it's funny. I was considered a pariah. Now it's like, they realize, wow, you were telling us, you know, you're right. You were targeted. I mean, and they do the same thing. Like, for instance, they stack their charges because the jury will say, well, he's got to be guilty on something. So, like, in my case, there was one check deposited, and they charged me with five felonies, uh, which is 120 years. And they charge – what they did is they said wire fraud, money laundering. And, like, the, I didn't do this. Wells Fargo opened up a savings account and gave me a credit card, which I never knew about. And they said because I transferred the money from the checking into savings, that's money laundering. And they do this repeatedly. They they stretch the 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 idea of law and order. And we went from, as you probably know, Jim, because you're really on the forefront of trying to create less government. But we went from during Ronald Reagan, there was three thousand criminal laws to now we have three hundred thousand. There's a book out called Three Felonies a Day, which I'm sure you're familiar with, yep. which outlines how everybody commits three felonies a day. You know, they're, you know, so they just the way Jack Smith works is he subpoenas everybody and threatens everybody. And then there'll well, be no, someone wait a minute. who buys. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Does he subpoena everybody or is he selective in who he subpoenas? No, no, no. In fact, I'll guarantee you. If you go look at Trump's case, he's doing now. He he'll subpoena the dry cleaning lady. Okay, everybody. so when you I mean, mean when you mean everybody, you're not saying everybody who's in a position of power. You're saying all the friends of an individual he's targeting. Everybody, it's to isolate you. There's a, okay, there's but, a thing. But, in, but the reason I the reason I ask that question, Steve, is I'm wondering if there's selective prosecution here, like. You start no, off by saying, yeah, well, there, there is selective prosecution, but he's using the the, the power of intimidation. To, in other words, he's he's subpoenaing. Think about it. He's subpoenaing the Secret Service. He's subpoenaing the staff at, at Mar-a-Lago. 
he and he's simply everybody what happened he'll get someone saying what they do and i know this because from my case they'll come up to him and say for instance we had a woman who was from norway and they said look and then, by the way they're allowed to lie that is actually went to court and they're allowed to lie he said if you don't turn uh and you don't cooperate we could take away your kids and, and your ability to live here in america which is and that but, but that's pretty that's pretty typical prosecutor stuff i mean prosecutors do this in criminal cases all the time right they do this to people who but have it's no a resources lie. it is a lie it's a lie it is a lie and they tell they tell her hey the constitution doesn't apply to you you're not american blah 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 my my stuff was under seal there's no way the press knew about it i didn't know about it Yet when I showed up in court, it was under seal. Yeah, NBC was there. So again, that's a felony that the DOJ committed in releasing uh, a sealed indictment. That's it wasn't supposed to be made public. Okay, so they do this so this is this is an important point, um, and I want to make sure we stop right here and make this clear. There was an interesting moment during Trump's indictment while he's behind closed doors where we, a reporter from NBC News comes out, and I, I happened to be watching NBC News coverage at the time, and says what's happening in the room. And one of the things that happened, or the way he described it was there was an admonishment for various social media posts and statements that Trump had made publicly. Well, that's actually not what happened. What happened was there was a general admonishment to everybody because the uh, DA's office has leaked and uh, Michael Cohen, in particular, has shared a great deal of public information about his interactions with the DA that's been very much uh, put the president of the United States in target, so, the former president. So, well, they call it, sh- yeah, they call it shaping the narrative. Well, what uh, well here's, what I, here's what I want to say about that, though. The media okay. has a self-interest in covering up the other side of this equation because they were the ones that were putting out that information. Trump was not using the media. He's using true social primarily and his public appearances to communicate directly, which is, by the way, what Republicans have been doing from since the 60s. They have been using tools like direct mail to communicate directly with with their people because the establishment media has a vested interest. Not and you could say that this is simply some partisan thing, but it's 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 more permanent pernicious than that. They want to be the outlet through which these things are leaked. They want to be the controllers of the information, and they're being given special access. So they're not going to do anything to bite the hand of the prosecutor because they want him to leak. They don't need Trump to leak. In fact, he's, his leaks are disadvantageous to them because he doesn't use them as their sources. So they have a vested incentive in coming out and only telling you what happened in that courtroom on one side of the equation. Does that make sense? Oh, I mean, that's it's to shape the narrative to convict you. They did this in my case. They they leaked uh, profusely, and then I was issued during my trial. I was issued a gag order. So I and what the gag order was, I couldn't talk about politics during the trial. Okay, <laughs> so I want to. I right now, I really want to try to lay this out in a narrative where our audience can follow along what's happening. Because now, all of a sudden, you have been you're on trial. So let's go back before that point. I really would like to understand like what steps of activism were you doing in the, in the years immediately preceding your second term in Congress? Oh, well, what I, I, um, th- I if I hear your question, you, you want to know what facilitated or triggered um, their targeting on me was really because uh, in Congress, as you know, like I, I was very uh, aggressive. I was the first one to call for the impeachment of Obama, which 
the left went ballistic saying that's so disrespectful then they impeached trump twice the little i do but one of the things i also did is i found out that hillary was and this should have made national news and it, frankly it's treasonous and i don't know why it's still not uh discussed but i found out a company here in houston was selling specialized steel uh to make centrifuges for uh to iran so <laughs> The, the very nuclear weapons that could be triggering and coming towards us, the steel to make the centrifuges is, you know, uh, was facilitated by Hillary for money. She had uh, a, a Ukrainian oligarch who was the number one contributor, and he was the go-between to get the steel to Iran. And uh, I uncovered it. I thought it would be on the front cover of Time magazine. Newsweek covered a little bit. Uh, our friends at uh, World Nut Daily covered it. But no one was interested in it. And th- then I found out that uh, Obama was sending millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to the Akani network. Um, we uncovered that. They first denied that they were doing it. They said they did an ex- for an exchange for Bo Bergdahl, the traitor who wandered off and got our guys killed in searching for him. And so, uh, you know, that they denied it, denied it. And they said, no. We didn't. Um, we we did not uh, give money or dollars for for Bo Bergdahl, but we gave euros, so it's legal. <laughs> it's like it's still money. It still violated the law. So I got under the skin quite a bit, and and uh, I think uh, when I got on national news, I was on Fox, and I called for the rest of Lois Lerner. Two weeks later, I had the FBI at my door. And they were but quite this, open about what what year is this that you that there are the FBI's at your door? Uh, Two thousand thirteen, right after I got, but just months after I got elected. Okay, oh, so I'm being corrected. Let me be more direct. Let me be more direct, Steve. Did you have a newspaper that you used in your election campaign? Was that previous? To oh your yeah, yeah, yeah. Election or was that your re-election? We, we could, it, wait, wait, Steve. No, was we, that your election or your re-election? Well, I'm trying to answer. It's all elections. We had papers. Okay. We we did. My grandfather was a newspaper publisher. We couldn't get any of our story out. And uh, that's one of the things that Lois Lerner went after me in the 90s when she worked at the Federal Election Commission. It, okay. It was the same thing she did to me. And I would publish. Uh, by the way, I never, ever got accused of putting anything false in the paper. And to this day, nothing's ever been proven to be false. So it re- but the, the left hated, hated those papers. And ironically, now the left is doing the papers and still our side is not. Um, okay. So people this don't realize, paper, what's the name of this paper? Uh, we, 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 we had various names. We had, one was America first, which is ironic because it was um, in the nineties that we call it America first. And um Ironically, uh, I was on the front cover of the working with the union guys who are pictured with the union guys who are building the prison I ended up in, and that was in the 90s. And Jack Brooks funded it. But anyhow, we had a lot of different names. We, but I can go in detail later. Was your was your newspaper part of your legal case? Uh, yes, it was. It was considered part of a. Uh, yes, it was. Yeah, yes. In fact, what they did, 
our good friend Bill Olson helped on that. But what they did, they declared, we followed the law. In fact, we had several people review the paper, and there was nothing on there that triggered it where we didn't use the words elect, defeat, you know, the five, they call them five magic words. And um, okay. when we- let's, pa- let's pause right there because that's really super, 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 super important. In election law, there are trigger words or what they call magic words that um, mean that this is now regulated. So uh, an activity to be regulated has to have has to be advocating for the election or defeat of a particular candidate. Um, so the what they call this literally, and, and this term should be understood literally, express advocacy, and then the express advocacy covers actual campaign expenditures. So was you were not in that newspaper, Steve, advocating the election or defeat of any candidate. In other words, you were not saying elect Steve, vote against his opponent. No, in fact, all of it was publicly sourced up. And we asked the FBI on the stand, we said, is this express advocacy? He said, no. The judge physically took the paper up between her two fingers and dropped it on the bench and said, I, this is express advocacy. So the judge who's supposed to be the referee is actually participating in the witnessing thing. She overruled the testimony of an FBI agent and said it was express advocacy. See, now that which then right tri- there, that right there is an extraordinary moment. And this, in, and in your appeal, this issue was specifically addressed by your attorney. Your attorney pointed out that this happened and that the way that this was done was that there's, there were two conditions that had to be satisfied by law and it was turned into an or. Instead of an and, it was turned into an or so that they could find yeah. a way. The jury was given specific instructions on top of this moment you described. According to your brief, the jury was given specific instructions to treat these, these communications as electioneering communications. Yeah, and, and the judge basically forced them into that decision of finding me guilty. It wasn't, it was, it was an incredible uh, star chamber. I mean, I sat there in disbelief because we followed the law to the T, and yet that didn't matter. And I, and by the way, I've warned James O'Keefe about this, and this was prior to him being investigated. He told me because James used to work for me, and he said. James told me, he said, don't worry, I got lawyers, I got all this stuff, they'll never get me. And I said, yeah, they will. They, there's, they can get anybody they want because that's the power they have. They do have that power. And, and, so, so can- and regarding that, you're right, the whole case or the whole case revolved around whether that paper was uh, lectioneering or whether it was just informational. And I contended it was informational and then, and then they said, well, you exceed the campaign contributions because it's no longer, we no longer, can, the judge rule, it's no longer informational, but express advocacy, even though we followed the law of what so express everything, advocacy is. So everything in the newspaper, literally, this is the hinge point. Everything, uh, exi- the, the entire case exists on whether or not this is electioneering, uh, this is, this is uh, express advocacy, excuse me. This is express advocacy. Right. Everything hinges right. And on I think, that. I think and, the, and the Trump the, case, the only way that they can turn that into a felony, the only way that they can make all those other felony charges stick is that they have to have an underlying crime. And they're relying primarily on they have a tax thing in there, too, which we're not going to get into. But they're relying primarily on this idea that the, he was engaged in an act of express advocacy by not advocating. 
by keeping something out, by actually not advocating. But express advocacy has a very specific definition in law going all the way back to Buckley versus Vallejo. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it's insane. I never heard of, they, they, in my case, they did the same thing where they, they had the straw man, they, they bootstrapped it. It's so similar. They bootstrapped it and then they create this. By the way, even in the case of the governor of Virginia, they, they, they said he made up the crime, Jack Smith did. And this, this has the finger marks of, of Lois Thorne and Jack Smith all over it. I mean, well, and as I said, the, same... the president of the, uh, the former president, at, at the night that he was arrested, tell, told in, in a speech specifically more than once alluded to Jack Smith's role. So this, yep. is another, this is another comparison to your case. Jack Smith was involved in your case, too. Yep. Yeah, he instigated it. And but he did it. Well, you got to realize there's there's communications between the DOJ and uh, Lois Lerner, and it, they're, she's worked for IRS. She's not supposed to be doing what she did, but she had the skill sets of FEC law because she worked at the Federal Election Commission. So she took those skill sets and used it and turned it over to, uh, in a memo describing how to do it. And it's exactly what they're doing. It was a way to take down conservative groups. And, and by the way, this what happened in my case, not just FEC, but it opens up the door because it involved, like you said, it involved FEC and nonprofits because you have a non, a 51C4 can do uh, non-express advocacy. Well, they turned, they turned it around and they said, we're deciding what express advocacy is. So that means every church, every nonprofit now is at the whims of an interpretation of the federal uh, government. Yeah. So if you start off with this idea that you can make, uh, you can break the law in one case, you create bad precedents that make it possible for rogue prosecutions to happen to anyone that they want to politically target. And they basically only need one precedent to make this work. So, you know, there's, there's a playbook that you're saying that they're operating from. You're saying that Lois Lerner is the author of that playbook and Jack Smith is the person who's executing it. Or is that, is that right. an accurate fact, statement? In, in, yeah, in fact, yes. In fact, uh, my case was cited in this uh, case that's in New York. Uh, it was originally cited, what's his name, the guy, that the lawyer, the Cricket Cohen. In Cohen's case, they cite my case. So they, how, how do they, building do, up. Can you give me a little more detail on that? To share that with our audience? How specifically was, do you recall? I was told, uh, well, they, they were, uh, I'm not a lawyer. So I, I was, someone called me up, another lawyer called me up and said, stock me, I can believe this. He said, they cited your case in the Cohen case, so a uh, precedent. So you could, you could probably get a smart lawyer like Olson or somebody to look it up. All right. So let's, let's just, what, let's do dwell on Lois Lerner one more, one more moment. Do you, are you okay. aware of where you say there's a, a strategy written out? Has, is this published anywhere? Does anybody have this? Yeah, it was, it was, there were several things. What you call it, Judicial Watch had a memo, a whole bunch of stuff that Judicial published. Watch had a memo on this. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So if someone did, was uh, enterprising, they should be able to find Lois Lerner fingerprints. Yeah. Uh, and it's written to the DOJ official name, Ray. Uh, oh, gosh. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but his first name is Ray. Okay. Oh, what, right, is so Wait, what is it? Wait, what is it? Hold on. It's Patty saying a whole by the way, he was one of the signatures on my original indictment. And then did all you these just, guys. Steve, when, Steve, did you just say a name? Because I didn't catch it. Yeah. Ray, Ray Holson or something like that. Holson. Holzer. 
He's he's it with an H. He's the one that uh, Lois Lerner sent the memo to, and he's the one that was orchestrating political targets. And she outlined in the memo, uh, uh, you know, how to, how to target people, and it's it's very similar to what they're doing to Trump and myself. Okay. Can can we take a a, a couple of minutes to really focus in? And, and this is going to be probably, I'm sorry, but I want to share with everybody what you no, were charged no, no, no. with. No, 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 no. what? No, you're you're fine. Okay. So you were accused of obtaining 1.25 million dollars under false pretenses and using the funds for your political campaigns. The specific charges included 11 counts of money laundering, eight counts of mail and wire fraud, one count of conspiracy to make conduit contributions and false statements, which would indicate a conspiracy to, cons- uh, to hide the real source of the false contribution, two counts of making false statements to the Federal Election Commission, one count of making excessive contributions, which you've already covered, which had to do with the newspaper, and one count right. of willingly filing a false 2013 federal income tax return by not reporting some of your income. The case record included 142,378 pages worth of documents. Yeah, yeah, no, I got it. We're ultimately acquitted on one of the counts of wire fraud. Yeah, here, here's the thing that you got to understand. Uh, and I, I learned this from a defense lawyer that unfortunately I should have had on my team, but I didn't. He said what they do is they print out, in my case, what they actually did is they print out one line on a page. And then, so they have all these spiral notebooks there saying, and they do this during the trial. They go, there's the evidence. They don't ever present the evidence. And that's why I needed to warn Trump about this. They'll point to these notebooks. And if you open up the notebook, you'll see one thing written on one page. They'll say, we have 145,000 documents showing he did this, da, 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 da. And they'll, they'll point to these notebooks that are prominently displayed so the jury can see them. And they keep pointing to, there's the evidence right there. And and there's not, in my case, there, it was so such a simple case. They had to, you know, complicate it. In fact, uh, they did the same thing with Trump. It got it was so gold Ruberg, you know. That my lawyers, in fact, I had a lady from, um, oh, it's Johnny Cochran's office. Uh, he used to work for Johnny Cochran. She said this is the worst indictment. This is she goes. This is a college student could have done, and she said this is horrible. This is this is so uh, things should be thrown out, and it's very much similar to what Trump is. They got they they stack it where you, you create the false narrative that you commit one fraud. By the way, Jim, there's no definition on federal cases, I don't know about New York, of what the definition of fraud is. The DOJ determined what the definition of fraud is. So once you have fraud, then anything associated with that, you can charge them with. For instance, uh, they, they were talking about my credit card uh, expenditures, and they were bringing up in court charges that were made prior to the donation. I said, you can't, you can't bring that up. You know, it, it was made, that, that was bought before ever the donation was ever made. She goes, the judge will, well, because it's a credit card, anything that's ever been on your credit card is part of the case. Things like that. I mean, it, go, it just goes over and over again. When you have an activist judge, a Democrat jury, and a Democrat prosecutor, Trump's not going to win that case. There's no way, unless they throw it out. Okay, so... 
can we break these down uh, a bit by bit? Because, and I have a mega question sure. to ask at the end of this, but sure. 11 counts of money laundering relates specifically to what? Because my understanding was that there was two things here that you, that they were looking, really staring closely at. One was the newspaper. The other was you had a project uh, that you were going to, uh, a nonprofit project that you were building uh, that uh, was going to uh, house activists that would come to work on Capitol Hill? No, 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 Hill. yeah, well, no, no, Jim, that, that's the press version of the DOJ. It was a whole written proposal. It had in there formation of the Freedom Caucus. We're the ones that formed the Freedom Caucus. I don't care what any congressman says. It was in evidence January 2013. It's a proposal. We're going to have Freedom House, Freedom Caucus, we, we did exactly what was laid out. We pointed out in trial. We said, look, this is what we said we're going to spend it on. This is what we spent it on. And they they portrayed it differently. And, so and, there and was it, there was no proposal on your part to to put a, a house for like maybe interns or something. No, that no, was no. Not... I didn't. No, 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 no. You're not hearing me. There's propo- By the way, this is a super complicated case. I mean, in terms of what happened and how they screwed me. But uh, yes, there was. And it, but but it's a full proposal of a house, a caucus. There was a whole list of things we we're doing. That was just one part, and including training. We we were we were proposing a dramatic thing to go after the left. And it's it's uh, I can I it's part of the evidence is the proposal. But the only thing they focused on was one part in okay, order to get so the, the conviction. So, the media collectively the media reports on this story and near as i can tell from having read some of, of your case focused on the fact that there was this house that was going to be purchased and and then you know occupants were going to go in that the house was not ever purchased and that instead what you did and here's what you're alleged to have done and and then ultimately were convicted of what you did is you diverted those funds either to campaign or personal use no that's what i'm trying to tell you that's not accurate what, what was what was the purpose of the money wasn't just for the house. It was we, we paid salaries for people that were running the nonprofit. That's totally normal. Plus, we used the money to raise more money for the total. The total budget was, you know, it's funny. My trial was nine hundred thousand dollars. And I'm laughing because both Trump and I got stacked decks and the guy. Uh, the, the national international drug smuggler only had 17 counts and we both had, you know, multiple way more multiple counts but even the 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 democrat uh bitcoin guys got less counts in some cases than what we got but to answer your question to answer your question it, it we followed the proposal and did what we were saying we we're doing it wasn't what they did in order to get that is saying the only thing in the proposal was the house which it wasn't you can yeah and, day, well, there's something there's something else related here like and i i can say this having run a nonprofit organization not all of your visions and plans succeed to the level of your hopes and your dreams and so at some no, point in fact we, we yeah at some point you you uh, you run out of funds or things didn't work as you planned, or you didn't anticipate some problem. And then you say, well, we've got a course correct and course correction might mean that we can, we have to abandon the project in the private sector. This happens all the time. It's called business failure. It is actually for a business that starts, the odds are actually higher that it will fail in the first three years than that it will succeed. And this is no different from any initiative that started inside of a nonprofit. You could start an initiative you could start to lay the, the predicates and put everything in place, but not be able to fully execute your vision. 
and I, I, I'm, I'm basically trying to help you uh, share with the public that the that failure uh, to achieve a mission should not be a crime. No, yeah, I agree with you. But also, too, you got to understand, uh, they did press releases as being investigated, and that kind of dried up funds. So they helped in the succeeding and in, in making it a failure. In fact, so much so, there was an organization willing to, to help, and they flew out there on their own, which had nothing to do with the case, and said, we're investigating him. You shouldn't give him any money. So they helped in facilitating the failure. We had never stopped. In fact, we kept continuing to looking for how to continue to do all those things that was outlined in the proposal. And, uh, but it was primarily because of their interference, uh, okay. frankly, that. I mean, that's so that right there all by itself is kind of remarkable. But there's the other end of this thing that we turn it over and we look and we say, okay, where did the money end up going? You said it went to staff. Um, but one of the things, if I'm understanding correctly, that you were charged with is that that there were conduit contributions and that the uh, staff members or their family that you were paying turned money around that was you they were receiving from the C3 and gave it to your political campaign. Yeah, this is, this is really a distortion. Um, the, they're, they're trying to argue that anybody that ever worked for me is not allowed to give me a contribution. And I've had over the years, not just me, but many people uh, that were volunteers in my campaign or, or uh, worked for me, honestly liked and supported me both, but you know, you know, they're splitting hairs here. When someone volunteers, technically they're giving you a contribution. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I didn't see any difference when uh, they decided to give a donation. And by the way, when the FEC told us, hey, you can't do that, we corrected it. And if you go at all the corrections at the Federal Elections Commission and see how many times that happens, they can charge so many people with that because it's thousands. I mean, from the Bush campaign, the Clinton campaign. In fact, Clinton campaign did way, way worse than this, and they gave her a fine. I mean, yeah, so this is another thing that people By the don't... way, the FEC looked at my stuff and said, hey, you didn't do anything wrong. The FEC never charged me. The DOJ That's... did. The FEC... Say that. Say that again. Say that again because it's really important. Here's what happened. The FEC said you made a mistake. We apologize. Return the checks. I mean, I'm cut shortcut on it for this podcast, but we returned the checks and the FEC said, fine, you're okay. The FEC never said what we did was wrong. Only the DOJ took it, just like in Trump's case. <laughs> Federal this election. is not, Bill, this is also not an accident. So, uh, so, oh my gosh, like how to begin? The, the, no campaign, no campaign has control over who gives to it. So it is a favorite tactic of the media, for example, to say that, you know, some racist sent in a check, right? And that's supposed to somehow taint your campaign. And usually that check is insignificant in the, in the grand scheme of things, and it's not a big deal. But then your challenge, you know, what are you going to do to repudiate this racist that sent you the money? Someday I'll cover that on another show, because I actually know what the answer to that question is. But the point is that you cannot control who's giving the contributions. And a campaign is processing contributions as it normally does. In fact, the person processing the contributions, that's their job. Their job isn't to go research every single person who gave a contribution to find out different relationships and whatever. What the, they have certain information that the campaign is required to ask, and they're supposed to rely on the truth and veracity of the information as it's submitted. And that's the law. And that's it. So anytime, anytime, ladies and gentlemen, that you see a campaign accused of, oh, well, so-and-so gave them a contribution, 
know that in the case of a normal everyday contribution, a normal reported FEC contribution, now if you hear something like there was a suitcase full of money, that's a different story. But in a normal uh, re uh, reported FEC contribution, they're not researching anything beyond what was what they asked for and the information that was supplied by the donor and the campaign isn't culpable and it doesn't matter whether they're green, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, or, some, or, or the man on the moon. All right. I, I um, want to point something else, Jim. Everybody thinks Congress would sit around and read their campaign reports and that's just nonsense. We had every every campaign has staff that does that. We have no idea. I mean, in fact, to, to point this out, Ron Paul had someone on his staff uh, embezzling money. Ron Paul never knew it because he didn't really look at it. I think it was a quarter no. of a million dollars. No. And uh, and and for and us, they think, in fact, my experience, having met so many congressmen and so many candidates that were, you know, pretty good candidates over the years is that the skills that uh, lend one to being good at going out and doing that job are almost the exact opposite of managerial skills. And what I mean That's by true. that is, yeah, what I mean by that is that there is a certain personality and engagement and vision and excitement that is, 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 is what energizes the candidate who in turn energizes people to come and support him. But what you need is somebody who, you know, sips warm water at night and reads the tax code. If you want to make sure your books are kept correctly, they're not interested in hanging out with people. They're not interested in glad handing. They're not interested in winning votes. In fact, they would probably go crazy in that situation. They would not be good at it. And, and so it's, it's, it's not the case. I've actually met very few people. And Steve, you're a little bit of an exception in this case, because you, you actually in, were very much into the mechanics of your campaign and how all that stuff worked. But most of the good candidates I've met over the years, uh, they very much know how to do their job, but they, but they're, they're being handed scripts. They're being told what to say and where to go. And other people are doing yep. their strategic thinking for them. So we, our system is so flawed because we assume that the skills that necessarily get someone elected I think this is an inherent flaw, are the same skills that make someone good at governing. And boy, that is just not true. Uh, it's, it's management skills are just generally not the purview of the candidate. The idea that the candidate's walking around like, oh, you know, and they're influenced by some $2,000 or $2,500 contribution is, is patently absurd. That's uh, spot on. In fact, the guy I had uh, hired or what I recruited, I guess is a better term, was is a professor at the University of Texas A&M over accounting. And he was using accounting principles. And he said, I don't understand why, why this is a problem. I said, Rabia, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not uh, IRS, you know, the standard operating accounting. I said, this has got different laws. So in part, it happened because the guy doing it didn't realize, even though he had a PhD in accounting, he, he, there's no way he can know all the federal election laws. He said, I don't understand. Why is this a big deal? And uh, I said, it's a very big deal, Robbie. I fixed it. So well, this will be a familiar even, point too, right? Because we talked about Jim Miller. And I want to give you an opportunity so that we've laid out all these charges. Um, I have a couple more questions about the charges themselves, but I want to ask you if we've uh -huh. missed anything in terms of the actual injustices that occurred at your trial. Is there any other detail uh there? Oh, there's there's a list. I mean, we, she wouldn't let us have witnesses. I was. She goes, it's it's a She goes, this is not a gag rule. Then she issued a gag rule. It's like I was like, what do you mean? It's kind of like this is not. It's like now there's this is nonviolent. You know, where they're burning everything down. You know, it's that kind of thing that you know, there's 36 sexes or whatever. 
I mean, it was just delusional. She said, I couldn't talk about politics or the political targeting, which in fact, I did a bill to, uh, I, which they had a copy of it. The FBI had a copy of it, which was to abolish the FBI. I also had a bill to, to cut down the DOJ. I had, I had did another thing where I wanted to arrest Lois Lerner. And all those people in the room were the ones going after me. And I wasn't allowed to tell the jury, this is retribution. This is what I did. I couldn't tell my side of the story. And, it, and it's really frustrating. I couldn't even, I, I, they, they had such a dominance, the, the DOJ, which Trump needs to worry about this. They actually hired press relations and had all kinds of additional uh, funding for uh, marking of their position of the, of the case. And so you get, you get to the point where, you know, it's just me. I'm not wealthy. I'm not, I don't have Trump's money. And, uh, you know, you just get overwhelmed and, and it, it, they waited, they took so long, four years, they took so many grand juries. And, you know, I was so happy. How many, wait a minute, how, many, I, how many grand juries, Steve? Four. Four grand juries. I was so, yeah, I was so happy when the grand jury no bill and I thought it was over. And, uh, the attorney goes, no, it's not over. They can do this as many times as they want. And what they did, which is so crooked is they brought witnesses in. This is what Jack did, or his staff. They'd bring witnesses in, and if they didn't cooperate or say the right things, the next time they had the grand jury, they weren't invited back. So it, by the time it came to the trial, they had already done the trial basically four times. So they times. get basically practice runs at making their case. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But you only get one defense. Right. Right. And, they, and they worked out, they knew which, which witnesses they could use, which ones they could, you know. That's they an interesting question, Steve. Witnesses. This raises an interesting question in my mind. If you could do anything over again, do you have any regrets? Do you have anything you wish you could change? Yeah, I wouldn't have hired the attorneys I hired. Also, I didn't have money to hire good attorneys. Almost to be honest with you, I think I would have done a better job of defending myself. I mean, there, uh, there's a lot of things I regret, and, and I wish, I wish I didn't keep a mouth shut. Lawyers kept saying, "No, you're going to ruin the thing if you talk to the press, and and if you don't." And then I look at what the Democrats do. Not only do they talk about it, they write a book and go on tour and get jobs at CNN. Well, and there is so, actually in Trump's in Trump saga, there actually is a, an author in this case that disagreed with the current uh, New York Manhattan District Attorney, uh, Mr. Bragg, who who goes out and writes a book that basically says, you know. The guys I work with were frustrating me. They couldn't find their rear ends with both hands and a map. And he actually is, I mean, and he's on the other side of it, but he was arguing that they, were, they should have charged this a long time ago. And, and well, so- Well, uh, my, my theory on why they did not, and this is absolutely, I'm convinced of this, is because if they did it earlier, the case may have been resolved too soon. They want this thing going on during the election. Well, they've also managed in this immediate time, they, this, they've been very patient. They've been very warlike in this. Yeah. They've managed to line up people who are squeezed and who have uh, turned states' evidence, even if yeah. even if that state's evidence is is weak, or even if that state evidence is manufactured. Like in the case of Cohen, it's it's manufactured. He pled guilty to, to non crimes when he had a stack of actual crimes completely unrelated to the Trump case that would have sent him to prison for a very long time. Now, if you have an oh, opportunity to get if you have an opportunity to get out from under all of those other crimes by rolling over on your former boss and confessing to two things that you're not actually guilty of. Like, <laughs> yeah. And his attorney is uh, Hillary Clinton's friend. 
and and, uh, and the other thing is that he people don't realize this, but Uber has a lot to do with his falling out. He was borrowing money from banks and lying on the bank application, which is why he really would have gone to prison for a long time. And he took money out from medallions on taxis. Well, the, the medallions became almost worthless after, or not worthless, but it was either were at one time worth a million dollars a piece. And the taxi medallions went down in price. By the way, that's supply and demand, by the way, because Uber came out and competed with the taxis. So he was over leveraged in that area and he was in big, big trouble. And you're right. He could have got, I think it was 80 page indictment that he would have gone to prison for the rest of his life. Okay. So now you're in, you actually got sentenced to prison and um, you, the COVID comes and hits. Um, uh, you yeah. Have... By the way, I was convicted 283 years. Okay. So you're in prison. Um, and it right. comes along and there's kind of a compassionate release program that covers people, uh, with medical conditions. Uh, did right. you actually get to walk out during COVID? I, I was approved because I'm a, uh, insulin dependent diabetic. I'm over 60. I was over 60. I have other maladies that were put me at the top of the list. So they processed me. I was get, stepping my foot because they had to quarantine us all before they released us. And I was stepping my foot into quarantine, and they rushed over to me and said, Mr. Stockton, we were given word uh, you are now allowed to go. And I said, what are you talking about? I said, look, we, we just got a call. You're not allowed to go. And one of the uh, counselors told me, he says, I don't know who you – he used a different word – uh, picked off, he said, but we got a call from Washington and said that you're never to see the light of day. And so, so how, how, and is it that you're, how is it that you're able to talk to us now? How did you get out? Because I have a beautiful wife. I have friends such as you and other people who pushed for Trump to pardon me. He didn't pardon me, but he commuted my sentence. And when they commuted my sentence, there are a lot of people are very upset because, you know, because <laughs> I I'm aggressive in my campaigning. Okay, and, so that uh, was this, that was right before Christmas 2020. So it's after the 2020 yep. elections, but before the events of January 6th. So people can place that in their in their mind. I, I have one exactly. more question about the case itself. This to me is the mega question. We've dealt with all the various things that you were charged with and why they were illegitimate. But I, I uh, to me, there's still one thing that's still lingering over your head because all you you didn't get a pardon, you got a commutation. And the Trump administration made clear in announcing your commutation that you were going to continue to owe restitution. The original restitution bill was $1,014,000 plus, right? A little over a million dollars. Yep. And yep. that you uh, were still going to be under supervised release for a period of time. Um, are you under supervised release as we're talking now? And yes, still owe restitution? Go ahead, And do you still owe restitution? Yes, in fact. In fact, there, I can't share with your audience, but there's still, um, if you look at Roger Stone and others, they don't ever let you go. And they've done some things to me since I've been out to try to put me back in. And uh, my wife works at NASA and has worked there for since 84. And uh, they're taking some of her pay every month. Uh, we, we had to move into a, we, lo we lost the house we were in and, so financially, they, they want to keep you under, you know, under the foot, the boot. 
So you're still paying the price for this, but I want to understand this is really important. So usually you owe somebody restitution because you have taken some from somebody. Who did you, who did you take from here? Are you able to answer that question? Like, who's, whose pocket was actually picked? Who's dissatisfied? The whole case is only two donors and everybody knows the two donors. I mean, one guy's worth three billion dollars, another guy's worth almost a billion dollars. In fact, the amount of money is they kept trying to make it sound like I was taken from grandma, you know. And uh our friend uh Dick Uline has a whole division. He gives away twenty five million dollars a year. The amount of money that he lost or what not lost, he actually said he was you know, he never complained, by the way. The FBI went to him. He never he in fact he gave me additional money uh after the first money. So he never complained. The FBI went in there and threatened him. It's the first time where you go to a victim, so-called victim, and say, if you don't report a crime, we're going we're gonna to charge you, <laughs> you know? Uh, Steve, I appreciate you coming on and sharing this story. It's the, the, the parallels between uh, your case. So thanks for coming on. Uh, you're the parallels between your case and Donald Trump's, um, to me, are, are, are just immense and, 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 and I hope obvious to our audience. Thank you for coming on yep, and sharing no this problem. story. I hope it is powerful and instructive, and maybe this is a way to get this story out. So I'm really glad that Steve came here today. And I want to say to everyone who's listening, because we have a, a most of my audience is libertarian, but you may be of any particular persuasion. And I hope you are, because we keep talking about grace, right? Grace should be practiced by everyone. Yeah. And Bill, if it doesn't matter whether Steve is your cup of tea or not. It doesn't matter whether you agree with his politics or would have voted against him. It literally doesn't matter. I have two grace points I want to offer. I want to say first, ends and means always matter, both, okay? And when we go into into the realm of political prosecution, when we start subjectively using the law against our opponents, and we even cheer, and we have some degree of schadenfreude for them, right? This is great. You know, we're going to bring down the guy that we disliked all along. And we're not concerned about making sure we, that we dotted our I's and crossed our T's and actually abided by the rule of law, which is being batted around a lot right now. When, when Bill Clinton was being charged, the Republicans talked a lot about the rule of law. When, when now that Donald Trump is being indicted for the first time, it is... Once again, we hear the Democrats, the, you know, they've grabbed the script and they said, okay, now it's our turn. We're going to start talking about the rule of law. And there's a convenience to that that is not acceptable, that we don't want. Representative government itself, if you believe in this concept, and as you know, I have some issues with how we do things, but if you believe in it, it's actually impaired when only the wealthy can run. And that's the truth about our present system. And I have to ask everyone listening, is that what you really want? I mean, either way, whether you think the system's good or bad, do you want it to be a system where only the wealthiest amongst us can run? Is that what you want? Because that is what campaign finance, that's the fruit of the system. And right now, Donald Trump actually has a prayer of a chance because he's the president, he's the former president. So he's got a lot of light being shined on him. And his case is going to be endlessly talked about in the media, which our guest today didn't have available to him, but he also has means. He's going to be able to hire the right attorneys. He's going to be able to make the right arguments. And in fact, they're going to be able to crowdsource these arguments because as they're being discussed in the media, they'll pick up new ideas and things that they should be able to do. That is not available for any, for any normal defendant in the dock, including Steve Stockman, who was with us today. 
as he pointed out, with both uh, with the script that you mentioned, the script being written by Lois Lerner and then carried forward by Jack Smith, correct? Yeah, yeah. So now, the final grace point. Then it's my second one. If the story was reversed, if the story was reversed, if this were a Democrat in the dock, would your position on any of these issues change? Now, you really, really, I just pointed out an example of how it did with Clinton, the rule of law concept, right? We have to always steel man our opponents. We have to take this seriously. And in the case of a legal venture such as this, we have to start off with the presumption of innocence. So it was, you may detest Donald Trump. I, I'm not here to talk you out of liking or disliking him. None of what we've covered here today has been about even hit the, some of the other more intricate details of his case. We're not getting into that either. What I'm suggesting here is that campaign finance is an effective cudgel to take out political opposition that does not cooperate with the status quo. That's what I hope we've demonstrated here today in this follow-up episode. And the grace point is that we always must steel man our opponents, the people that we disagree with. We really need to understand where they're coming from. And so I ask, do you understand where Donald Trump is coming from? Can you have the grace to do so?